The cause of this death was blunt force trauma to the head. The missing mother who was found dead died from blunt force trauma. It says the child died from blunt force trauma to the head. Amy's office also confirms she died of blunt force trauma. The medical examiner says the cause of death was blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Hello and welcome to episode four of Blunt Force Trauma, the true crime podcast where we smoke weed and talk about a murder case. I'm Jamie. I'm Mark. AKA Marv. Um, and I'm currently smoking a King Mamba Sativa with some spaced out distillate, so doing it right. Um, how are you doing, Marv? I'm okay. You don't look well. My allergies are kicking my ass. But... Okay. Um, well, this week's case, honestly, is just so messed up for so many reasons. Um, I'm happy to remove it from my plate. No pun intended. You'll see why later. You'll see why that's a pun later. Should have maybe waited on that one. Um, I couldn't even really keep it to myself while I was doing the research. Like, I had to tell Mark who I was covering because it's just such a crazy case. I mean, I didn't give you details. You didn't give me a name either. Well, I didn't want you to look it up and cheat um but the more i read the wider my mouth went agape um so this week i'm going to be telling you the story of isei sagawa also known as the kobe cannibal um the covid cannibal no the kobe cannibal oh kobe oh yeah um and it is batshit start to finish um, I'm actually surprised I didn't know more about it, given how insane these details are. But, I mean, like, I've known about him and the basic facts, but I never realized how deranged he actually is. Because he is very much alive and active, um, and not behind the walls of a prison like you would think, but rather as a completely free man, out living like a literal celebrity in Tokyo, Japan. Right now? Right now. This man is out. He's out. Noted. <laughs> noted um so when you hear how all of this unfolds it's really terrifying to think that he's just out there living life um and not in like a subtle modest way either so i'll get into that as well um but disclaimer i just want to say this case involves sexual assault murder and obviously cannibalism um, but in a pretty elaborate fashion like these details are bleak um and if i happen to like laugh or we joke in some way it's just because the quotes that come out of this guy's mouth are so unbelievable it's hard to like not make light of it somehow you know right um okay so my sources for this episode are murderpedia.org the sun all things interesting the new york post ranker.com and japan today I also watched a few interviews featuring Sagawa and listened to a podcast called Red Handed, which was very thorough, so let's get into it. Um, Issei Sagawa was born on April 26th, 1949 in Kobe, Japan, to rich parents, so never really had to deal with financial struggles. Although he did have some issues with his health that held him back a bit, um, he was actually born a few months premature, and by the time he left the hospital, his father was able to fit him in his literal palm. And so because of this, he maintained a very tiny frame for most of his life, standing at only 4 feet 9 inches tall. So, very, 
But that's all he is. Tiny. Full grown. Full grown. Full grown. Um, he also suffered from an illness called enteritis, which is similar to Crohn's disease in that the intestines are inflamed and it causes like abdominal pain, um, cramping and digestive issues. So not fun. Um, and I imagine the fact that he was a cannibal did not bode well for like his digestive tract. If you know what I mean? Well, no, because you're not supposed to be eating human flesh. Right. Especially not when you have... A digestive issue already yeah. um, other than being physically tiny and having recurring issues related to his enteritis Sagawa's childhood and formative years were relatively normal uh, there was nothing really significant that the average person could see as like a trigger point for his sadistic behaviors coming to fruition right. um, Sagawa himself however recalls things a bit differently um, he claims that there were two instances from his childhood that sort of set everything in motion um, and you know everything being his insatiable craving for human flesh um, how do you crave something like that <laughs> I don't you just know. wake up one day and you're like hmm, I'm craving human flesh he basically did um, he goes on to describe a game that his uncle would play with him and his brother I'm sorry it's a game well, <laughs> no, just let me let me say what so it is. So we're just making games now to eat human flesh, it seems. Well, his uncle, okay, his uncle will dress up as some sort of monster and chase him and his brother around the house, you know, like pretending to scare them. <laughs> now that you're looking at me this way, it does sound worse than how I read it. It does. Okay, and the concept, <laughs> the concept was that they had to outrun the monster. Otherwise, he was going to scoop you up and toss you in the pot and eat you. <laughs> I, I guess it is bad um, and so his uncle would jokingly catch them and put them in this deep pot that they had in the house <laughs> stop looking at me like that and he would say things like I'm going to eat you for supper or I'm going to take a bite out of you etc <laughs> yeah um, I wrote that from the outside looking in if this was just a random story in someone's life like Maybe that's some sweet uncle nephew bonding time. Now I see. We it need to look into the uncle now. <laughs> um, but I guess when you hear it in this context and realize that one of those kids grew up to be a cannibal, um, not such a cute the little uncle game needs to be investigated anymore. Well, he wasn't. So let's just drop that now. What's going on with the brother? He comes up again later. He also had like some weird fetishes not involving like murder or eating human flesh but he he a little weird too um so he claimed that like this game this was one of those things that piqued his curiosity and opened the door to cannibalism at a very early age but again silly little game to the average joe maybe but to this psycho it was like a blueprint of sorts um he took it very literal clearly uh, the other impetus behind his twisted fantasies, or so he claims, were uh, books and literature presented to him as a child, especially the story of Hansel and Gretel. So, Marv, I know you've obviously heard of Hansel and Gretel, but do you actually know what the story is, like, about? No. No. Not even an attempt. No. Nothing. <laughs> um, okay, well... I'm, a, I'm not a big book guy, so... <laughs> okay. Well, for those of you who don't know like Marv, um, Hansel and Gretel is actually darker in tone than most would assume. Um, it was written by the Grimm brothers in Germany in 1812. 
They are also responsible for writing other fairy tales like Rapunzel, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and Little Red Riding Hood. And um, all of those stories have some sort of twisted symbolism that was certainly like watered down for Disney and commercialized for kids and the general public. Was it really watered down or was it just... No, it was definitely watered down, like the tone, the way it was presented. It was definitely presented on like a lighter princess, happy ending note. Yeah, as but we'll be naive to not even look at it in that light. No, I'm sure it can be like looked back upon and analyzed. And I think it has been that there are some like there's some symbolism you can take from it that's dark. I mean, it was written that way initially so i mean there's going to be some connection somewhere but in the grand scheme of things compared to the initial quote fairy tale that they wrote the one that we see on disney is vastly different than what's detailed in this um but snow white for instance was intended to symbolize the coming of age so the white and snow white represented innocence at birth and a naive nature Her red lips and the apple were a symbol of maturity and passion from, like, a sexual standpoint. And her black hair was to symbolize death. So, it's pretty dark. Um, But the prominent symbol of Hansel and Gretel, which Issei Sagawa claims as his favorite childhood story, is the idea of hunger as a basic instinct. Um, The original tale, brother and sister are abandoned by their poor parents in the woods to, like, fend for themselves. And in an attempt to find their way home by leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind, an evil witch representing temptation seeks them out as a meal and tries to eat them. So cannibalism, like, again, plays a big role in this. So not the sweet little story you may know. I got an idea. Let's (laughs) stop making excuses for this man. This isn't an excuse. This is what he is claiming to be the impetus behind his Because I got bad news. What? We've all read that book. You just said. But I'm just saying. You didn't. Not all. All but Marv have read that book. No, no, book. I'm saying. Majority of America has read that book. Okay. And we're not out here eating human flesh. No shit. He, no one is saying like because of I'm reading I'm not saying Hansel anybody's saying, but like his, his excuse has to be. He didn't present it as an excuse at all. He's very much maybe, admitted like of I his Like I said, crimes. maybe you should investigate his uncle because I have a funny feeling his uncle eats humans too. I don't know. I told you to drop the uncle thing. No, he no, doesn't. No, no. He does not come back into play. He, he should. In this story. Um, you're very upset about the uncle. Because um, he's a suspect. Whatever. Regardless, he, he's just saying that this was his favorite book as a child and this was one of the things he can recall as his first ideation of eating human flesh. You understand? It wasn't like... I became a cannibal so because first, of Hansel and so Gretel. So this is kind of like the first time that This is introduction into he's, he's, cannibalism. Get it? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So by the time he was in first grade, he recalls looking at his classmates' thighs and thinking to himself, hmm, that looks delicious. <laughs> yep. Um, first grade. And when he reached puberty, he was able to explain and equate his craving for flesh to that of, like, a sexual desire that someone with a normal brain his age would be feeling. Um, Although he does stress that his need to consume human flesh was a much stronger urge than, like, a crush or something you may experience as a pubescent kid. Um, So he says, quote, It is a deep fetish. For example, if a normal man fancied a girl, he'd naturally feel a desire to see her as often as possible and be 
close to her to smell her and kiss her, right? Well, to me, eating flesh is just an extension of that. Frankly, I can't fathom that everyone does not feel the surge to eat and consume other people. Not to kill them, you know, just to gnaw on their flesh. No, because it's fucking wrong. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, in 1964, at 15 years old, he sought psychiatric guidance to help silence these urges, which to me just proves that he was aware of the problem and knew that it was wrong. So while he is clearly not right in the head, he appears to have the rationale necessary to deem right from wrong, which is usually a big argument against a plea of insanity in the court system. So just keep that in mind and we'll see how that all plays out later. But as it turns out, nothing would really help him, and his urges only became more and more extreme over time. He references tall Western women like Grace Kelly as being sexual puppets put on display by the media to satiate the sexual depravity of men like him, and goes on to blame the media for, like, essentially shoving, quote, sexy flesh in his face on a consistent basis. Sexy flesh are two words that I just don't like together at all. Um... Yeah, no. No. Um, and, like, he has a point, sex sells. Like, the media has always sexualized women, but never in the name of, like, hey, she's hot, why don't you take a bite out of her? Kind of seems like this is all. I need own. to know how he approached these women. Did he just say, hey, you have some sexy flesh? Well, we'll get into it, because by, quote, these women, you'll see. Um... So in 1972, at the age of 23, he commits his very first crime. Um, so he breaks into the apartment of a German woman who was living in Tokyo. Her name was never released. Um, she was sleeping peacefully in her bedroom when Sagawa silently creeped in and attempted to slice a portion of her exposed buttocks with a knife. Uh, but the victim luckily woke up and screamed, which scared Sagawa off enough, and the woman was able to contact the police. Uh, they were able to, in fact, apprehend and arrest Issei Sagawa just hours later, but charges of attempted rape are ultimately dropped after his father reportedly paid a large sum of cash to the victim. So that was his first dip into the crime pool, but it was essentially expunged from his record as if it like never happened. So life continues as normal for him. Money buys you freedom. Yeah. Money buys you a lot of things. Um, when he went on to earn a master's degree in English literature from, oh boy, Kwansei Gakuin University in Japan, uh, he eventually in 1981 moves to France to pursue a PhD in literature from the Sorbonne School in Paris, um, which is where he would finally act on 32 years worth of repressed desire to consume human flesh. Uh, now, this is significant because he goes on to become a best-selling author post-crimes, and in an excerpt from a book he wrote in 1983 called In the Fog, he claims that he brought a prostitute home almost every single night with intention of eating their flesh. Um, his plan was to distract them and shoot them from behind just enough to immobilize them so that he could consume their raw flesh while they were still alive, standing by the fact that murder was never the intention. <laughs> uh, he says that no one ever believes him, but the idea of murder was never the driving force or necessarily part of the plan. It was always about eating the flesh, and that's it. Um, he says flesh so much, I'm literally like repulsed by the word now um he could never bring himself to execute this plan however 
either the circumstances wouldn't align just right or he'd like chicken out and not follow through. So for like a year, he was bringing home sex worker after sex worker after sex worker with intention to literally eat them, but he never actually succeeded. Eat them as in like whole? Well, parts of them at least. Like he said, like he didn't want murder was not his main intention it was just to consume their flesh so maybe he what do you think is going to happen if you eat a person's flesh maybe he could just you think they're just going to wake up the next day and be like oh i'm ready to go back to work (laughs) well no like clearly something fucking weird would go down but he maybe could just take a bite out of their leg and they could survive like they don't have to die um so this quote foreplay if you will only boosted his desires and as time went on he found himself like invested in the idea now of a ritual killing prior to consumption so rather than just immobilizing the victim to gain like easy access he's now decided that after not being able to follow through time and time again he's built up such a strong urge that it's now translated into i want to kill them so they can be entirely mine I have such a need for human flesh. I need the whole thing, not just a piece. This is gross. Um, So now his hunt for the perfect victim wasn't quite as random as picking a sex worker off the street. Uh, He wanted to know and befriend the person, claiming, quote, to know her in all totality would only make her taste more sweet. Um, Adding that he wanted to, quote, absorb her energy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I want to remind you, just in case you forgot, uh, this man is literally out and about roaming the streets of Tokyo, selling books and art, doing interviews, um, starring in porn. Yep. Um, so yeah, let's not forget the fact that he is a free man. As we dive into these extremely disturbing details of his crime that we come to know of because he has just so callously, like, shared his inner monologue with the media. It's just crazy. Um, okay, so... Sagawa struck up a friendship with one of his classmates at the Saborn School, 25-year-old Dutch student Rene Hartevelt. Now, Sagawa had only known Rene for like a few days at this point, but he claims she was friendly and lovely and didn't seem to look at him any differently, um, unlike most others do uh, because of his tiny frame and isolating demeanor. But I bet he looked at her differently. I bet he did. Um, because he kind of like formulates this plan to chat with Renee and become friendly enough with her where it wouldn't be strange to meet at some point like off campus. And so he does just that. Um, he strikes up conversation and compliments her work. He shares a bit about himself and where he's from. And it's not too long before he deems it appropriate to invite her back to his apartment on the guise of like working on an assignment together. Now, what's interesting is, again, this contradicts an argument of insanity because he has the social cue of understanding that he needed to wait for an appropriate, like, amount of time before taking their friendship to the next level. You get what I'm saying? Like, if he has the wherewithal and a thought process and a plan, essentially, to manipulate her into trusting him, like, in order to do that, I feel like you need at least a very basic understanding of the human psyche. So, like, the idea of insanity that gets... Right, this is, this is a well-thought-out plan. Exactly. So, like, the idea of insanity that gets presented later on, in my opinion, like, it's valid to bring to the table, but ultimately, like, I feel like there are plenty of instances where it could be disproven. So, unfortunately, Renee obliges and agrees to come to his apartment later that afternoon to review the assignment, as I said. Um, and little does she know, he would be literally panting and salivating 
as he made it a point to frequently stand or sit behind her, like working up the courage to shoot her in the back. So this man is sitting behind her. Yeah. Salivating. Salivating. Panting. Panting. As if we're about to feed Dobby a treat. <laughs> yeah. Literally. This man. Yeah. I, don't, I can't even I can't even put into words what I think of this man. I told you. Um, he eventually musters up the nerve, aims the gun at Renee's back, and pulls the trigger. But the gun misfires and Renee's life is spared for now. Um, this totally throws him off and angers him. Um, it motivated him more than ever because now he's proven himself that he's actually capable of killing this woman. And he, quote, gets giddy and excited for the next opportunity he has to, like, pull this off. Sick fuck. Wait, she hung around? She had no idea that this took place. She doesn't hear the gun jam. No, I guess it was far enough of a distance where she didn't hear it or wasn't paying mind to it. Because she comes back around, and if, in my opinion, if she caught wind that some guy was aiming a gun at her and firing it, I would fucking leave the country, let alone go back to his apartment. Feel me? Um, so a few days later, on June 11th, 1981, Renee is back at his apartment, um, which is the last place she would ever be seen alive. Um, but this time, he asks her to come over and review and edit a piece of poetry that he'd written. And so um, she's there basically reading some bullshit poem that he's written. I'm certain he's published it somewhere because, like, that's what this guy does. He, like, writes books and draws pictures and sells them and makes a profit. Like, people buy into it. So, yeah. What do we think this poem says? I would love to eat your flesh. <laughs> Roses Make are sure red. it's nice and fresh. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Roses are red. Violets so is your are blood. blue. Red and blood don't rhyme in the way you just said it. Roses are red, so is your blood. Roses are red, so is your blood. So, no. <laughs> well, roses are red, so is your blood. Roses are red, violets are blue doesn't rhyme either. Let me finish. Roses are red, violets are blue. Your flesh looking right, I'ma eat you. Mic drop. Bars. <laughs> Bars. Um, okay, so... While Renee was distracted reading this poem that may or may not have said that, uh, 32 years of pent-up urges had surfaced as Issei Sagawa walked up behind her and shot her through the neck with a rifle, killing her instantly. Um, very sad. I mean, like we said, she'd been there before, seemingly in her mind, with no issues. Um, she was friendly and trusted him enough to go back there and, like, was just completely taken off guard. Um... I mean, if anything, like, oh, at least it was quick. Like, she didn't have to be met with a realization of, like, pain or death. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Not that that makes it any better, but. So, this made Sagawa so elated and euphoric that he literally faints with joy, knowing that she's basically at his disposal for him to do, like, whatever the fuck he wants. Um... So when he comes to and realizes that this is in fact reality and Renee Hartefeld is dead, he begins to give in to the urges he's been suppressing for all of these years. Um, trigger warning, these next parts are rough and pretty graphic, so if you're queasy, skip ahead. Um, you, Mark, unfortunately cannot <laughs> skip ahead. Um, these details... Lucky me. Yeah. These details are directly provided by Issei Sagawa himself, and they're later on confirmed, like, 
to the degree possible by medical examiners. So he begins to undress Renee and first slices into her butt and details that he had to like cut through layers of fat, which he said resembled, quote, sweet yellow corn. Um, once he cut deep enough to reach meat, he decides to pause for some time and proceeds to rape her corpse in various ways for a few hours. So he's a necrophiliac too. So murderer, cannibal, and necrophile. <laughs> Mark has no words. He's just mouth agape. Um, he goes on to cut into her hips and legs, detailing the flesh as soft and odorless like tuna so tuna's not odorless maybe just like a raw slab i don't know regardless i'll never be able to eat tuna the same if at all so um he basically spends the remainder of his weekend going back and forth between consuming her and having intercourse with her dead body as her body like withers away because he just keeps eating flesh on her. correct um that is absolutely vile i know I know. Um, he slices up her flesh and places individual pieces on different plates around his apartment. Uh, he took pictures of this, and you can see them online if you want to. I'm not sure if I'll We're be... We're not posting them to our Instagram. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure if I'll be posting those in particular our to the Instagram. Instagram will be taken down. Yeah, um, but you can look them up if you're interested. Uh, he also cooked some of her flesh and made a teriyaki with it, so... <laughs> Mark's face. I can't. <laughs> Mark enjoys a good teriyaki, but not no more. <laughs> um. So once he's had enough, and she began to like decompose and smell. Um. Like tuna. No, Marv. Like a dead body. Um. He recalls that his only regret was not having the chance to consume her while she was alive. Um. That. That was the meat he'd always craved, and so while he's, like, satiated for now, he admittedly wasn't 100% satisfied with his process, so uh, keep that in mind, that he still has a hunger, pun intended, um, this time, to consume live flesh. Friendly reminder, this guy is free, walking the streets. Um, he proceeds to dismember what's left of her, and stuffs her body into a suitcase that he had on hand, made of, like, material, not plastic, which is important. Are we going to get to the fact of how he's still free? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You know. Um, so he carries this suitcase all the way to a large park that borders this lake just outside of Paris. Um, but the problem is that he chooses to do this, like, right at sunset, when the park is somewhat crowded with people who came to see the fucking sunset nicely on the lake. Um, and instead they see this tiny man <laughs> lugging a large suitcase that at this point was literally dripping blood. Um, red flag. Red flag. Um, and Sagawa's intention was to bring her to the lake and dump the suitcase there. But onlookers call the police who show up pretty rapidly um, and are able to apprehend him right then and there because he just flat out says i killed her to eat flesh uh so at least he's honest <laughs> right off the bat um french psychiatrists deem that sagawa is quote crazed and irresponsible and ordered him to a psychiatric hospital where he was kept until 1983. during this time sagawa was about 34 
And his rich father, once again, steps in with the funds for like a tip-top defense lawyer who is able um, to get him in front of French judge John Louis Brugger, which his name has a bunch of fancy French accent marks. And I'm sure it's said much more beautifully than that. But Jean-Louis Brugger. Um, Let's never do that again. <laughs> uh, this French judge deemed him legally insane and unfit to stand trial, so he was shipped back to Japan after being held for two years without trial, which clearly, yeah, he's not well. He obviously has depravities and disorders galore, uh, I'm sure, but up until, like, the way he went about disposing her body, I would say, he was completely methodical and, like, decisive with his actions, so I think a trial, at least, would have made a difference. Because I'm sure once details were presented to more than, like, one deciding individual, the outcome may have been different. I mean, anybody can play anybody can play insane in front of anybody. Well, yeah, but, I mean, psychiatrists and stuff conduct in-depth How thorough interviews. was it back at that time? I'm not sure. Um, but he is shipped back to Japan where, surprisingly, he was not even tried in his homeland. Like, knowing the details of his crime... Uh, some theories argue that Japanese officials had trouble obtaining um, prosecutorial documents from France, but regardless, in 1986, he was simply just released back into society, just like that. Done. Crazy, right? I just don't understand how... <laughs> I, I don't understand it either. Um, so, as I've said, he did not go into hibernation and lay low. He completely capitalized on the media attention, because at this point... All of these grisly crime scene photos were leaked to the press, and every news outlet wanted to book him exclusively, but he went on to give countless interviews, like, detailing his crimes. Still not arrested, still not charged, convicted, put behind bars, locked up, nothing. Um, in one interview, he says, quote, Having had cooked human flesh, I probably wouldn't do that again. When it comes to cooked meat, I prefer other things. <coughs> Okay. Like? I don't know. Other things. Tuna. I don't know. <laughs> Contradictory to that, um, in an interview conducted 35 years later in 2021, when Sagawa was 72 years old, he says, quote, The desire to eat people becomes so intense around June when women start wearing less and showing more skin. Just today, I saw a girl with a really nice derriere on my way to the train station. When I see things like that, I think about wanting to eat someone again before I die. So, free man. Still hungry for flesh. And who did he say this to? Just in an interview that he did. Um, and nobody decided to call the cops. I don't know what to say about this. This is all a little bit insane. We're just going to let a understand. man openly discuss that he wants to eat a person because she had a nice derriere in the middle of June. <laughs> <laughs> we just gonna we just gonna think it's okay. That's what that's what be happening. But if I was to do it, I'd be in a psych ward, in a in a in a jacket strapped to a wheelchair. I yeah, yeah. I hope so. If you were to do anything like this, I'm, you're getting the fuck out of here. Um, okay, but anyway, um, in 2015. Director Verena Paravel caught up with Sagawa for a first-hand account of his crimes, which she then documented and released as a film called Cannibal. Um, 
The film shows what Sagawa has been up to over the years, including his starring role in softcore porn films where he can be seen like gnawing on the other actors in like a gimmicky fashion. Um, so I guess there are people out there that are into this. Um, no, nobody's into this. Apparently, people are because they I guess made if you're multiple. Getting paid for it, I guess it's different. If you're getting paid for it, sure. But I'm talking about the people that are out there watching these and paying for these softcore porn films that he's making, in which he's gnawing on these porn actresses. It's so there's, there's some there's some fucking whack jobs out there. Yeah, so there's people out there that are, I guess, turned on by that. Um. He writes multiple novels, he hosts lecture circuits, he illustrates comic books, and he even wrote a verse for the Rolling Stones song, um, Too Much Blood. <laughs> so, um, this guy just completely made bank off of a completely depraved and horrific crime, where he should have been charged with murder and improper disposal of human remains at the very least. Um, and it must just be so sad and traumatic for Renee's family to know that this guy has like access to all of these freedoms and then some meanwhile like their loved one yeah and their loved one is like disposed of and like forgotten essentially which is just really sad literally treated like a piece of meat basically literally yeah um it's very sad but I'll leave you with this. Um, at the end of the film Canaba, Sigawa is pictured sitting next to his brother June, um, who I mentioned earlier had some pretty odd fetishes himself in a sexual way. I read, I'm not really going to get into it because it's a little weird, but like, I think just the fact that he openly admitted that is weird enough. So I'll just say that. But um, he's sitting next to his brother June, who then asks him, as your brother, would you ever eat me? <laughs> to which Sagawa replies with just a prolonged stare in silence, ending the film. So that is the insane and frustrating story of the Kobe cannibal Issei Sagawa. <laughs> Marv is left frazzled. <laughs> what are you thinking? What did you think? Uh, I don't know what to think of this man. Yeah. The fact that he's just out there, like wandering the streets. Well, that 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 in itself is just mind blowing and fucked up to even think that this man just kills people or killed somebody and has the desire to kill more people just to eat their flesh, and this man is not locked up for the rest of his life is beyond me. Right. Um. Not only that, but like I'll show you. There are tons of. But he's out there openly admitting to all like he, he's willing to do it again he wants to do it again before yeah. he dies yeah he's talking about it and he there's like magazine covers and such with like pictures of him again like making light of it like cutting into a plate of food being like oh ha ha i'm gonna eat this plate of food like and the, like when we had our engagement photos like that guy <laughs> Yes. Mark and I had our engagement photos done in our home. Like, it was our first house, and it was together, and we felt like we wanted to document both our home, like, and our engagement. So I pulled, like, reference photos from Pinterest, like, cute, like, in the kitchen photos and, like, in the living room photos, bedroom, like, it was, you know, modest, subtle, nice, good photos. And then some of the photos we ended up getting back, like, 
he made me stab, like, pretend to stab a thing of cookie dough while Mark looked afraid of me. And so we have those. Maybe one day I'll post them if I muster up the courage because they're pretty, they're pretty awful. Um, other ones came out good. Those, scary. Um, but yeah, there's pictures of him doing weird things like that and just gross stuff out there. Like, on Etsy, there's copies of his drawings and stuff, like, being sold. And, like, you can buy his art and stuff, like, self-portraits of himself. There's a comic book he illustrated, like, of the whole crime of him killing Renee Hartevelt that exists, that someone allowed to be published and put out for sale, where people are buying this. And, like, he illustrated... But that's not, that's not hardcore evidence against this man. I have no idea why. That's like OJ releasing the book. If I did, this is how I would do it. I feel like it's even worse than that. Right. Um, because he's literally saying I did do it and this right. is what happened and here's the pictures. I mean, who's to say, like, like I said, medical examiners did, um, confirm a lot of the details that he admitted to as being factual, but there's a lot of like, you know, nuance in between that are just his words that no one who unfortunately is alive anymore was there to attest to. So who knows what he's like glorifying or making up like who knows what happened i mean there's clear evidence of him being depraved yes but i'm saying in these comic books who knows like how accurate his illustrations and such are like we don't know but he's a psycho psycho to say the least yeah um okay so let's make light of this marv um this week mark pulled some stories for y'all to hear he claims that one of them is funny, one of them is sad, which I don't know, maybe one it of them won't is be. sad with a happy ending. Okay, and then one of them is boof. He said boof. That is a boof. <laughs> this it's it's on it's on course with like the whole murder thing. It's on course with the whole murder thing. Okay, right. all right. So let's go. So what do you got? Edgefield County man dies of heart attack while burying woman in backyard. Okay, so we won't be making light of anything, I guess, this episode. No, I'll work my way to a lighter, to a lighter happy ending to all this. Okay, continue. An Edgefield County sheriff says evidence shows Joseph McKinnon strangled Patricia Dent inside the home and was burying her in the backyard when he died of a heart attack. Okay. They say they discovered Joseph McKinnon's body first before finding Dent's body in the backyard pit. Neighbors in the Trenton, South Carolina are left with plenty of questions after Edgefield County Sheriff deputies responded to Tanglewood Drive on Saturday and discovered the two bodies. Dawn Howenitz, who lives up the block from where the bodies were discovered, says she and her family only have been living in the area for two years. She says she was concerned and didn't know there was a danger to neighbors after those bodies were discovered. We have no idea, and that's what we're asking about. At least let us know that it's something they have in control or don't have in control. Do we have to make sure everything is locked up tight? Watch our dogs or our animals. We got a farmer back there too. You know, it's scary, says Howowitz. What the fuck? On Monday, autopsies were performed on both bodies, and the cause of death for Mr. McKinnon was confirmed to be a cardiac event. Miss Dent was found to have died by strangulation. Evidence gathered at the scene, along with statements from witnesses, aided investigators to build a timeline leading us to believe that Mr. McKinnon attacked Miss Dent while inside their home. Okay. Wait, they were like married? No, I guess something? they were just like hanging out or they were boyfriend, girlfriend or something. Okay. Uh, Mr. McKinnon then bound her and wrapped her in a trash bag before putting her in a previously dug pit. 
The pit was then partially filled by Mr. McKinnon. While covering the pit, Mr. McKinnon had a cardiac event causing his death. Wow. So he got caught and died in the same day, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Not much of a lighter note. No. It's pretty fucked up. But, but thank you for your tale, Mark. Um, this next one, some may find it uh, funny. Um, <laughs> Why are you always doing that? <laughs> I um, I find it um funny. Um, because I found it because the end result didn't lead to anything sad. So oh I my found God, it, there's sadness. No, in no, it? no. There's no sadness because uh, I, I found it uh, because just it reminded, tell the story. It reminded me of like a Disney movie, kind uh, of. Okay, I'm so lost. Just please. <laughs> Just please tell the story. A Cape Cod diver was just swallowed and spit out by a humpback whale. (laughs) (laughs) I was not expecting that. Okay. In this story, a man was swallowed by a whale. And no, it didn't take place in the pages of Old Testament to a man named Jonah. It happened to a lobster diver named Michael Packard off the coast of Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, my God. Packard... Had set off early in the morning on Friday, June 11th, to dive for lobsters with his fishing partner, Mr. Mayo. I don't can't pronounce his first name, so I ain't even going to attempt it. <laughs> After a disappointing first haul, Packard dove under the water to try again just before 8 a.m. But as he scoured the sandy bottom of Herring Beach Cove, something suddenly struck him from behind. All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black, Packard said. Oh, my God. From the surface, Mayo watched as Packard's air bubble suddenly vanished. But he couldn't have possibly guessed what had happened to his partner be- below the waves. A humpback whale had accidentally swallowed Packer in one, accidentally, sure. in one huge gulp. Everything went dark, Packard said. Wait, he went into the belly or he was just in the mouth? He was just in the mouth. Okay. Okay. Everything went dark, Packard said. I was like, oh my God, did I just get bit by a shark? Then I felt around and re- realized there was no teeth and I had felt no great pain. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm in the whale's mouth. I'm in the whale's mouth and he's trying to swallow me. Oh my God. I would literally shit myself. For a terrifying stretch of 30 to 40 seconds, Packard struggled in the darkness. Questions raced through his head. He still had his breathing apparatus on. Would he be stuck in the whale's mouth until he ran out of air? Oh my God. So he could still breathe in there? Right. Whoa. Weird. What would have happened to his wife and teenage children? I thought to myself, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. And I thought about my kids and my wife. There was no getting out of there, Packard said, recalling that he could feel the whale squeezing the muscles of its mouth. But then the whale started to shake its head. Packard felt himself zoom toward the surface, and like that, he was free. Oh, my God. From their ship, Mayo saw a burst of white water. Then he spotted Packard soaring through the air. (laughs) A charter boat captain named Joe Francis saw the same thing. I saw Mike come flying out of the water feet first with his flippers on and land back feet in the water. Feet first? Whoa. Francis said. He jumped aboard Mayo's boat and helped pull Packard out of the water. I was inside it. I was inside its mouth, Packard gasped once they had him aboard. It tried to eat me. Although Mayo worried that his fishing partner had suffered broken bones or an embolism, which can happen when a diver surfaces too quickly, Packard miraculously survived with few injuries. That's in part because whales aren't generally aggressive towards humans. The whale who swallowed Packard likely did so by accident while trying to feed. According to Juke Robbins, the director of Humpback Whale Studies at Center for Coastal Studies in Providencetown, when a humpback whale opens his mouth to eat, its mouth expands like a parachute. As for Packard, he's not hanging up his diving gear anytime soon. 
In addition to his encounter with the whale, Packard has survived a plane crash, confrontations with great white sharks, and almost getting lost at sea. In other words, he's not too shaken by nearly getting swallowed. Packard Holy says shit. he'll get back to diving as soon as he's fully healed. Oh my god. That's just nuts. Okay, what's your third story? Okay, that... so my third and final story is um, it's due in part to a special event this week. A special event this week? Our, our little, <laughs> You're so official. Our little Dobby boy has officially turned one years He's old. He's one years old. Um, so I thought it would be best to uh, maybe end this segment with a Pitbull rescue story. Aww. Like we did with Dobby. Um yeah. Rescued from filthy conditions with more than 70 other dogs, Huck now has a forever home and some furry siblings. Aww. Huck's story doesn't have a happy beginning, but after this pit bull mix was rescued from appalling dirty conditions, he overcame his fear to become a sweet pup who loves a good lap for cuddling. Aw, like Dobby. Back in February, he was rescued from a hoarding situation with more than 70 other dogs oh in Florida. God. Where he had been living in a filthy, crowded conditions... Santa Rosa County Animal Services handled the initial rescue, but it needed a hand from other rescues given the large quantity of dogs who needed shelter. That's how Huck ended up at Citrus County Animal Services. When he arrived at the shelter, the amber-colored pup was so afraid he wouldn't walk, but despite his fear, he was still a loving sweet boy. Aww. He was terrified, the director of animal services in Citrus County tells Daily Paws, but all he wanted to do was crawl into your lap and melt into you. Aww. The shelter volunteers worked hard to get him out of his shell and made sure he felt safe in his temporary home. With their love and assurance, it wasn't long before Huck realized he was safe, loved, and able to be himself. Aww. Literally overnight, Huck was like, I got this. I can be a dog now. I'm safe, and I can be your best friend. Aww, that's so cute. Luckily, Huck didn't have long to wait to show off his true self to potential adopters. Huck arrived at the shelter February 23rd. And Pamela Rice adopted him three days later. Oh, my God. It only took three days for him to, like, ease into it? Yeah. Oh, he was probably just so happy to be out of that, like, disgusting right. joint. Rice and her fiancé had been looking for another dog, so when they heard about the Bissell Pet Foundation's Empty the Shelter's adoption event, she decided to go. Though she was initially planning on adopting a smaller dog, she was smitten the moment she saw Huck. I met Huck and the rest is history, Rice tells Daily Paws. I was instantly drawn to him. He stuck by my side the whole time, so I knew he was my boy. Aww. Rice is no stranger to adopting animals. Huck now has two furry siblings named Underfoot and Bo. <laughs> Underfoot, that's interesting. He found his footing quickly. These days, Huck spends his time playing with Underfoot and Bo and soaking up the attention Rice showers on him. Aww. He's perfect, Rice says. He's so chill. He's good as long as you're giving him food, hugs, and kisses. Literally same. Huck and 45 <laughs> other dogs and cats were adopted during the five-day Empty the Shelters event. And in Huck's case, it sounds like his new mom couldn't be happier with her decisions. Adopt, 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 Rice says. There's nothing better than a dog that knows that you saved him. It's so true. Right? Dobby is like the best thing ever. Yeah. He's the sweetest, most loving boy I've ever met in my life. Is Mark crying? Guys, Mark. <laughs> We're not putting this in the podcast. Mark's crying. When it comes to animals. Uh, um, on that note, <laughs> we'll leave you with that. Um, we'll see you back next Wednesday with a new episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed. And I'm going to go dry Marv's tears now. Okay. <laughs>